0: Hi, Ann Pearson here. And before I begin today's episode, I'm excited to tell you about the Paralegal Bootcamp's new three-step roadmap to manage cases like a rockstar paralegal. If you're fairly new to litigation, this quick start guide will help you figure out three things that you can be doing to help you better anticipate what the attorney needs before they have to ask for it. It'll help reduce some of those last-minute scrambles, especially if you're working for an attorney who's a procrastinator, or someone who doesn't always share all of the important case information with you. I put this three-step roadmap into a downloadable PDF for you, and it's completely free. You can get yours on our website at paralegal-bootcamp.com forward slash three steps. All right, let's jump right into today's episode. All right, I've got a special Q&A session today. Instead of me answering the questions that listeners submit on a particular topic like I've done in the past episodes, for this month's topic of e-discovery, I've invited a couple of guests on the show to answer your questions because they know a heck of a lot more about e-discovery than I do. So today I'm joined by Andrea Pelleggi and Kevin Jeremy. They are with RICO's eDiscovery division. RICO is a global leader in technology and service delivery. As part of their portfolio, RICO offers best-in-class technology and service-based eDiscovery solutions for litigation inside of a law firm as well as corporations. Andrea is a senior eDiscovery consultant with RICO and Kevin is an eDiscovery account executive. So welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you very much, Anne. Thank you. So I want to start out because before we even hit the record button today, I have a question that I get asked all the time, and I don't even know the answer to. How the heck is it spelled? Is it E-Discovery? Is it small e, capital D? Is it big E, little d? Because all of them show up as a spelling error in Microsoft Word. Um,
1: I, I, it's little E big D. I think it's following kind of the, uh, the email trajectory email used to be big E hyphen mail, and then it was little E hyphen mail. And then it was big E no hyphen mail. And now it's just all little letters email, um, e-discovery is in the little E big D phase.
0: All right. Well, while we're on the subject, can you explain exactly what is e-discovery for those who are listening who maybe are in real estate or they're brand new paralegal and they haven't been exposed to it yet?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the dictionary definition of it, uh, e-discovery stands for electronic discovery. And um, that is the electronic aspect of identifying, collecting and producing electronically stored information or ESI in response to a request for a production and a lawsuit or investigation. But in simpler terms, and most often when you're talking about e-discovery, you're talking about e-discovery software and processes. And it's really looking through electronic data and trying to find the most relevant to a particular investigation or litigation.
0: Okay. Thank you for that. All right. So let's jump in. These questions were submitted by users, either LinkedIn, Facebook, some of them came in by email, and these were from listeners and followers and specific questions. So the first one kind of started with a comment, but she wrote, well, we don't do e-discovery at our firm. My attorney wants me to print it all out, all of the emails, just print them all out. And it's so time consuming. What can I do?
2: That's an interesting uh, and frequently asked question, surprisingly, but to keep it in its absolute simplest um, term for responding, the easiest way to address that would be to advise that perhaps the user upload those emails via an FTP where a service provider could then load them into a review platform. It makes it much easier uh, to review those documents, those emails. It certainly offers enhanced security, which is a huge focus right now in the industry, um, not to mention ensuring that you're not losing any information, losing any metadata inside of those emails. You still have the ability to apply markups, redact anything that would be considered privilege, et cetera. There's also some advanced analytics out there in the industry that would allow for email threading. So where you're not rereading the same email 50 times uh, that were sent over and over again, uh, which I can tell you from my own experience, I see that in my own email. I don't know if that gives you um, enough of a, a response for this um, person asking the question or if, Kevin, you want to add something to that. But I felt like that was the simplest way to address it.
1: Totally. I I I think they are asking for it in hard copy probably intimidated maybe by the technology or their lack of knowledge about the technology, but certainly a provider, a business partner can show them all the benefits that Andrea mentioned and uh, the relative ease in which you can adapt to these types of tools to get those benefits.
2: Yeah, I think um, it's also... Uh, we're also in an era where I don't think there's anyone who doesn't have access to some type of a laptop or an iPad or something where they can review documents in that format digitally versus carry around a banker's box full of documents like in the old days.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I tell people all the time when they tell me something like that, that they're spending their time printing out emails or turning them into PDFs that then they've kind of taken away the advantage of having it electronically. And that's why it feels so overwhelming. If they would just keep it electronically and review it electronically, then it wouldn't be so overwhelming.
1: Yeah. And honestly, they are dealing with same kind of technology in their regular lives. Like they open up iTunes or Netflix and all their media is there and They can search it by name of a song or the artist, or they can sort by the music genre or the date, um, you know, playlists of music from the 90s. I mean, they're already doing things in other platforms with their regular lives that is no different from what they would be doing with these emails in these review platforms. You know, they just assume that it's going to be some scary monster that it's not.
0: All right. Our next question. Thank you for that, both of you. Our next question comes from someone who wrote: How does a paralegal move into a project manager role or another role with an e-discovery vendor? We've seen a lot of that recently. But how how would one do that?
1: Well, getting themselves educated, taking the initiative for that personal professional development, and um, taking the initiative. To make themselves familiar with the subject and become a thought leader, and somebody who can get things done within the firm, and you know, right now we are we're seeing kind of people making choices uh, to stay or leave uh, law firms in the traditional in-office sense, and if they have educated themselves on subjects like discovery. And they have become familiar with and partnered with vendors and business partners throughout their time at the firm. It is a very natural progression to go from inside a case support team or lit support team within a law firm into uh, a, a company like RICO. You know, we've seen examples of it very recently.
0: And does that prior experience lend well to their success? Does it help them in their role?
2: I would say absolutely. Oftentimes, RICO will look for individuals that have that type of a background so that they can add not only the technical um, knowledge to weighing in on consulting and advising clients, but also have the background from the legal perspective uh, that a paralegal would have that someone who hasn't you know, taken a role in the paralegal um, world would definitely bring to the table. So I think that combination of paralegal, maybe senior paralegal, maybe senior litigation paralegal uh, is a, a very smooth transition from there into uh, an entry level project manager. And then once that becomes, you know, a little bit more comfortable, they can then roll into more of a senior project management role, which is much more consultative, handling larger cases. And then inside of RICO, you can actually take it to the next degree, which would then be a solutions architect who drives collaboration between the client, the attorney, um, the project management team, the consultant themselves, and make sure that all parties are aligned. So having that background from a paralegal, to me, seems like the absolute perfect foundation to launch inside of an e-discovery service provider like we
0: Nice. Okay. That paralegal is going to like the answer to that question. All right, well, next is my attorney comes to me with a new matter and has a hard drive and a couple of laptops and a cell phone. What do I do?
2: Well, the first thing you want to do is identify a service provider that has the expertise to forensically collect that data in a fully defensible manner. And if need be, have the credentials to be able to testify to the process in which the collection occurred. Ideally, the same service provider would also offer the ability to convert that data from those devices into a viewable format that can be analyzed for the most relevant information needed in that case and then potentially produced for trial. Having a business partner that can collaborate and consult and guide the client through that entire process will definitely drive some cost savings, yet give you the ultimate results downstream for both the attorney and the client. Kevin, anything on your end that you would add to that?
0: No, I think that's perfectly put.
2: So in other words, they shouldn't
0: start just opening up those laptops and cell phones and going through it themselves?
2: Absolutely not. Self-collection can be a dangerous game. Please, by all means, seek out a third-party professional, forensically certified company to work with. Um, There are some corporations that have in-house sophisticated forensic teams. There are even some very large law firms that have the same. But if you don't have that type of skill set and the ability to actually testify in a fully defensible manner as to how you you went through the process of collecting, that can be a slippery slope and an expensive one. And it's not to say that there aren't things
1: that you can't collect that you have to use a forensic collection for but it is to say you should talk to somebody who knows the difference and the distinctions you need to make sure uh because we see it all the time people say well i just had the client forward all of the relevant emails to me. um well that's a no-no uh, it's 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 a no-no and it's important that you are talking to somebody who you may not end up doing any business with it in terms of that particular collection, but they're going to help guide you through what is and what isn't defensible, and uh, make sure that the time spent is time well spent, and that someone can testify to the manner in which this was all handled.
0: So, do you guys offer that? Do I mean, can someone just call you up and say, "Hey, I've got this stuff that was you know brought in from the client and"? you can give them that type of information?
2: Absolutely. We um, offer forensic services as part of our portfolio. It's not uncommon, whether it be a departed employee analysis that has to occur or just any particular type of litigation where, you know, the data sits on either an email server or hard drives or external devices and the communication that went on inside of that is going to be potentially relevant to a case. Um, I would also say inside of this discussion, we could take it a little bit broader and say, you know, don't overlook the applications that people are now using that reside on the cell phone or on your laptop, something like WhatsApp or Slack or Teams or Zoom, especially inside of this post-pandemic world. Most of us worked inside of, you know, remote tools like Zoom and Teams and the chat that went on inside of that all becomes very much part of any type of evidence or e-discovery. And so, you know, when looking at the overall case and where the data needs to be collected from, if you're going to take the, just if you make the decision that you're going to do any type of self collection to, to Kevin's point, make sure that you have worked and consulted with a third party expert that can rely on their own technical expertise that would give you some information that could potentially become very relevant down the line. Thank you.
0: All right. Our next question comes in from, this was from a Facebook follower. And she says, we have a self-service platform. I assume that means in-house. They're doing their own um, in-house e-discovery. But there have been times when the case got way bigger than expected, and then it was too late to send it out to a vendor. Is there a way to know when it should be outsourced or done in-house?
2: So a couple of things inside of that question. So you could have somewhat of a self-service tool that is what we would consider not white glove, where you've got project managers and consultants holding your hand through the whole process. And then there are other scenarios where you have your review platform and discovery tools in-house, but more of an infrastructure as a service. So there's two very different ways to look at that. But let's say, for example, to your question that you posed or you were posed, the case all of a sudden takes on a whole different face and it becomes a bear. Uh, You would definitely um, never be too late to reach out to a vendor. Data can be migrated. But the rule of thumb is this. If you can collaborate with a service provider early on and often, that will minimize the common challenge that you've been posed here in this question. Deadlines to offer recommendations come inside of the budget. You want to be able to stay with deadlines. And if if your business partner or the vendor service provider that you're going to work with is aware and conscientious. They're going to stay ahead of that side by side with you so that you don't go down a bad path or get caught behind and then have to go to the judge and ask for an extension. Um, self-service tools are ideal for lots of different types of matters, but they don't all offer workflow into a higher level review platform such as Relativity. So your migration options always need to be considered. Again, going back to where I started with this, if you're if you take the time to collaborate with that service provider, they may be able to tell you, you know, you can try this option, but always allow yourself a migration strategy should this case grow beyond what you're comfortable with in-house.
0: That's good. I like that. A migration strategy.
2: Okay. Do you have something that you want to add to that?
0: I, yeah, I, I think to that point, as
1: as it grows, so I'll, I'll put it like this. There are tools like Relativity that are kind of ubiquitous, and you're not you're not going to be hard pressed to find a co counsel or opposing uh, that is unfamiliar with Relativity. But that self service tool you might be using from that small uh, vendor or maybe big vendor, but that self service tool that you may be using may not play well. It may not be easy uh, to work in conjunction with opposing or co counsel or a third party. So you want to keep those kinds of things in mind. Is this a self-service tool because you yourself will be the only ones who really need to play in it, or are you going to need to collaborate outside of your own? Level? And those are again considerations that, to Andrew's point, if you're engaging someone early enough, on they will be there for you to walk you through that. Should those things come up later in case, and not at the outset.
2: Yeah, I'd like I'd like to add one more thing if I may, Ian. Sure. If somebody is faced with this type of a a situation or a dilemma and they're not quite sure how much data they're going to have, you know, it's not uncommon where I'll speak with, you know, an attorney or a paralegal and they're just not sure what's coming. So they're trying to decide what's the right solution. You know, what type of a platform is what we really need? We don't want overkill, but at the same time, we don't want to get caught with our pants down, if you will contacting a service provider and and speaking with a consultant like I am, it's something I do every day with with clients or prospective clients. There isn't a fee to reach out to someone and say, hey, I have this case and this is coming. I'm not really sure what it's going to look like. I don't know how much data. Can you walk me through some options where I don't get put in a corner? And I think if I could, you know, probably drive any one potential key fact here at home that would be it don't get caught in a corner and by reaching out to a service provider that's willing to offer you know non fee based consultative service i think you can't go wrong with that
0: wow so like if somebody listening today to this episode has just that happening where they they're just not sure you guys take their phone calls for free and like they haven't even engaged you
2: yet Absolutely. Um, That happens pretty frequently with myself and probably Kevin as well. Um, At the end of this um, podcast, I'm hoping that you'll share our emails uh, with the audience. And please, you know, we would encourage you to reach out to us via email, which is probably the easier way to reach us because we're both on the move so much and, and, you know, in and out of client meetings. But I'd be very happy to speak with anyone and offer whatever guidance I can. And engage a, a solutions architect. And, and when I use the term engage, it doesn't mean engagement for cost. Uh, initially, we're really just trying to listen to what you have going on from a challenge perspective and then potentially come up with a solution that may or may not result in some type of a, a fee-based engagement. But please feel free to reach out.
1: I, I always say, uh, you shouldn't have to budget for brainstorm. <laughs> you shouldn't have to budget for- It should just always be something you are doing, and there shouldn't be a cost factor for brainstorming. You want to make the right decision. And if there's dollars and cents on the line and a meter counting the minutes and hours you spend brainstorming, that adds some pressure to make the wrong decisions.
0: Okay. All right. Our next question this one was from someone on LinkedIn who saw the post about sending in questions in advance, and they asked, what are your top tips for reducing errors during document coding, e.g. missing important documents or inconsistent coding? And are your tips different for a single person reviewing documents versus a team of reviewers?
2: So I have to confess, and I did confer with one of our top um, project managers on the manage review team for our organization, uh, someone who is... um, highly respected and is quite technical. And I asked her to keep it pretty basic, not too techie, but at the same point to answer your questions. So to provide some feedback, there were two top priorities when they conduct a review that we'd like you to pass along to your listeners. Number one, encourage an active question and answer and dialogue with counsel and among the team. And along with that, you want to Do some QC feedback to ensure that everyone is on the same page and not misunderstanding anything with the analysis that's going on. Secondly, fully leverage all the technical tools that are at the disposal of the service provider to ensure that you have an accurate, efficient, and consistent review outcome, which includes maximizing your review platform, such as Relativity, and the features inside of that as well as some custom tools and third-party applications. And I think by that, this individual was referring primarily to the fact that this, any managed review service provider should be utilizing active learning and the most advanced analytics that are out there to get through the review process quickly, efficiently, and saving as much money for the attorney or the client as possible.
0: Okay, so I've heard that term a lot, and I'm familiar with it. Um, Cal, at least, is what I've heard, you know, continuous active learning. Can you explain that to some, for people who maybe don't know what that sure. is? It,
2: it it can sometimes be referred to as TAR or Cal, um, but in essence, what we're saying is it's basically an algorithm that is created by technology learning over and over and over. So it's reviewing and reviewing and it's measuring the results that it's getting over and over and over based with key information that you're feeding it as far as search terms, keywords, etc. And it develops patterns to say in its simplest terms, if I've reviewed, you know, a thousand documents versus the full population of a million documents, I'm seeing the responsiveness to be 20% or 10% based on the terms I'm feeding it. So it's actually creating some type of an algorithm in which you can make a decision on how much of a linear review, meaning eyes on, that you actually want to do versus just assuming that you need to do all of that physical review, which is extremely expensive and time-consuming.
1: And they are more familiar with this than they most people realize um the same way netflix recommends movies for you because of what you have given a thumbs up to or a thumbs down to or movies you've told it you like when you first sign up that is active learning as you watch movies and tv shows and tell it you like them and dislike others it finds the commonalities between these different tv shows or movies or whatever and then it recommends things based on what you like and dislike as andrea said you're providing kind of seed information on what is relevant, isn't relevant, thumbs up, thumbs down, and that AI will then, in the background, start pulling documents that look more and more like uh, what you've given thumbs ups to. So again, this thing that seems like a foreign subject is already in our lives in, in other ways. Okay, thanks for that.
0: Our next question comes in and he asked or said, I've had a bad experience recently with an e-discovery vendor because when all was said and done, we'd spent almost twice what the original estimate was. Can you give me some red flags to look out for next time I'm choosing a vendor?
2: So the phrase, if it seems too good to be true, it usually is, or the devil is always in the details. Uh, That is quite true in this industry as well uh, as you determine what service provider you want to partner with and really trying to evaluate what the true cost and effective solution that you're going to end up with. For example, I find a lot of attorneys and or organizations are very attracted to a low hosting rate and they sometimes lose sight of all the details or hidden costs that aren't as Bold and aren't there out there in front that you can so easily necessarily identify with early on. But yet, as the case progressing, those numbers grow exponentially. And so, all of a sudden, you know, that hosting rate is irrelevant. Uh, You're getting excessive costs in project management, for example. There are organizations that bill project management time differently. I would say, you know, some companies will charge for a project manager the minute they answer the phone, whereas this maybe another company, uh, for example, Rico, if a project manager is contacted by a client and it's a simple call, um, I need this or, you know, can you direct me here or how do I see this? The clock isn't necessarily quote unquote ticking until the service request is something that the client could do themselves but yet they're actually asking the service provider to provide a service. So something as simple as just how project management fees are incurred could be the difference between hundreds of dollars or thousands and thousands of dollars. There's also cost differentiators in how data is called and processed and produced. All of those factors can really create a significant difference and if you're not really looking carefully at the overall estimate that you're given when looking at you know engaging in with a different service provider from one case to another it can be uh, it can be daunting so make sure that you're really looking at all the details inside of that when you're specifically looking at managed review make sure that you know you're talking to that service provider to find out How early on in the process are they willing to start utilizing that AI, different types of TAR or CAL, as Kevin and I just discussed? 70% of the overall spend on any given matter from an e-discovery perspective will be consumed inside of the review process. And so you absolutely want to make sure that you're proactively working with a service provider that knows your expectation is to use AI. And how early are you planning to turn that on? Just a simple example like that could be the difference between a very big cost difference and how you're going to appear to your client at the end of the day when all the invoices are totaled.
0: All right. Thank you for that. Well, I've got a couple of questions myself um, that weren't submitted, but I'm just curious. I think some listeners would want to know. Uh, what kind of trends do you see in e-discovery? What kind of things would paralegals and other legal professionals, attorneys listening to? What, what do they need to be prepared for in the future?
2: Well, I think we're starting to see a lot more corporations embracing the concept of e-discovery, and they've explored the idea of investing into their own in-house litigation teams. They're bringing in the technology and the resources, so they're not necessarily re- relying as much on outside counsel to provide that type of service when they're facing litigation. Additionally, we're also seeing, and I think I've said this on numerous occasions in the last few minutes, the implementation of AI and advanced analytics much earlier inside of the e-discovery phase for more cost-effective pricing models on the front end of things versus on the tail end of it. We're also starting to see different pricing models, uh, subscription-based pricing where firms are able to leverage lower costs across all matters by establishing tiered pricing. And then they can actually even offer those fluctuating but lower costs across directly to their belt, the clients as they're uh, generating invoices to their clients. So for example, if any given month a law firm has a significant amount of data that they may be hosting across multiple matters that takes them into a lower tiered price, they can actually extend that direct to their client as long as that client understands that it is somewhat of a variable cost. But never before have we seen pricing models before where we were able to extend that off to clients that want to be direct billed. Additionally, as I mentioned earlier, from the forensic collection perspective, analysis of user apps, that has really, really increased significantly with Slack, WhatsApp, Teams, Zoom. People are using a variety of different platforms to communicate business-related discussion that can be relevant for collection and analysis. Um, We're also starting to see a better understanding of the concept of information governance as it relates to, you know, when a case or the anticipation of potential litigation could occur, and how they need to start governing data inside their organization should they be faced with litigation down the line. Those are primarily, in a nutshell, the trends that I'm faced with day-to-day that are you know kind of new in my world. I don't know, Kevin, what, what would you add to that?
1: I think the pandemic has created uh, some new trends that we might not have seen end of. Maybe a new way of working, you know, peripherally from the great resignation has come the great negotiation. I will continue to work here, but I'm going to work from home. And working from home means that both for law firms and for corporations, you have to start considering where is the data? Where is client data being looked at? Attorneys are working from home, paralegals are working from home, legal secretaries are working from home, you know, and their clients are also working from home. So, where are we collecting the data? Who has access to the data? Who can see it? Security questions. All of that is as a result of this new world of work. But I don't know that that's going away as we hopefully are coming out of the pandemic. I think it might be just the new way we work. Period. There's going to be a big segment of our workforce that works from home. And it'll be important to make your discovery and your cybersecurity and your information governance decisions with all of that.
2: I'd like to add one last thing to that. And I've seen inside of our own organization, new training curriculums that have become mandated um, as a result of this, you know, new way of work, if you will where we have to actually go through training online and certain case you know, examples are given to us. Someone's working in an airport, they're on a conference call, they're working on their laptop, they're sending text messages. They're testing us to see if we understand how much information is considered private or how are we governing the way in which we're communicating. And it's interesting to see how much or how little we really know about this area. And I think there's very few of us that can honestly say that we're all set there and that we don't have right. a lesson or two to learn. So I would say not only is this um, a trend as it relates to e-discovery, but I think overall in general, in light of how we work, I would say that everything will be very much scrutinized not just electronically, but communication in general. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Um, all right. So,
0: one other question. So, if a paralegal gets an e discovery project dumped in their lap, they don't know what to do and how to do it. Let's use a hypothetical. They've engaged you as the service provider, maybe the two of you together. Is there a way that You help get them educated. They don't know what they're doing and they hand over the project to you, but that's not going to be a long-term solution, right? They've got to start learning. What what happens from there?
2: So there's a couple of answers I, I would give you for that. If someone is looking for basic questions, you know, again, feel free to reach out to us. And if it's something that I can answer that's outside of a matter engagement, point someone in the right direction offer some suggestions, you know, we're here as industry experts and very happy to offer as much help as we can. That said, let's say that, for example, we're in the midst of a contract where we're supporting a corporation or a law firm on any given matter, and it becomes, you know, obvious that some of the team needs some additional training either inside the review platform or how to understand the use of something like email threading or information on some type of an advanced analytic or some tips inside of reviewing documents that could make a significant difference. All of that type of training is something that we offer to our clients. is considered a value add as part of what we do. Additionally, we do offer CLEs. We offer them all year, we work collaboratively with the HR department on either a law firm or a operation to make sure that we have the registration set up inside the given states where people will be applying. And we kind of collaborate together and put together usually, well, back before COVID, we would almost always do it as a lunch and learn. And I'm hoping to start doing that again, but we can offer them virtually as well. Okay.
1: Right. Well, add I, the, yeah. I'm so sorry. Ann. No, it's okay. Can I, I add that, just ask just ask, pick up the phone. Um, will you be billing me if I want to talk through or get some education on this, that, or the other thing? Just just ask. first of all, there is no vendor. I can say this despite not speaking for all vendors. I, I can confidently say no vendor is going to be unhappy to receive a call uh, from a potential client, even if that potential is down the road. We're all happy to take those calls, but just ask straight away, can you give me time to talk me through this? Can you give me time to educate me on the options? Can you give me the time for me to make an informed decision or will you be billing me for that time? If the answer is that there is going to be some consultation cost, project management cost, tech time cost, advisory cost, then you know that's for you to decide whether you want to pay for that or not. In our case, certainly, it is an investment into you, into the relationship, and into the client to get you educated. It stands to benefit the vendor as much as it benefits you. So feel free to call and ask the questions.
0: All right. Well, along those lines, then hopefully you guys won't regret getting, giving out your email. But I would love for you both to share a way or a couple ways if you want, that listeners can do that, that if they wanted to reach out to you and connect and talk through something or how could they reach you? Let's start with
2: uh, Andrea. I would say the best way to reach out to me and get quick response would be via email. I do travel quite a bit and sometimes my phone is off if I'm in meetings. So I would encourage you to, to send an email. Uh, I've shared my email address with you, so I'm hoping, Ann, you can distribute it to your listeners. But um, I respond to emails pretty frequently, so I would say I'm pretty much living and breathing with um, either my laptop or um, my phone in front of me. And as soon as I'm available, I will respond to someone who's looking for some response.
0: Okay. And so let me um, give out the email and I'll include that in the show notes. If you're listening while you're driving, walking, running, doing those types of things. So you can reach Andrea by email at Andrea, that's A-N-D-R-E-A dot Pileggi, P-I-L-E-G-G-I at Rico hyphen com. And Rico is R-I-C-O-H for those that don't know, but we'll include a link in the show notes and how about you kevin
1: um the same thing they can they can send me an email honestly andrea and i work um pretty closely together and in tandem so uh most times well all times when you reach out to me you're reaching out to the both of us i i will certainly engage her uh, as quickly as possible but uh, you can you can email me or email her and we'll be there to help as soon as we can be
0: all right, great. And so his email is kevin, K-E-V-I-N dot G-E-R-A-M-I at rico-usa.com. All right. Well, thank you both so much for spending the time today and answering all these questions from our listeners. I really appreciate
2: it. It was our pleasure. Thank you for having us.
0: All right. And that's a wrap for this episode. Bye for now.
2: Bye-bye. Thank
0: you. Thank you. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, hit the subscribe button in whatever platform you're listening. And please take a quick minute and leave a review of the podcast and share this episode with just one colleague or friend who you think would benefit from what we discussed today. Share the knowledge and the entire paralegal profession elevates. See you next week. Bye for now.